You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. I cannot believe we are at the end of this. I have had so much fun with you, and I have really, really loved your heart and your spirit for letting the Holy Spirit move in your life this week. Man, the stories have been remarkable. I know that we have some guests here who haven't been part of the week, um, and it looks like there are some parents. So I'm not part of the admissions team, and I'm not part of the staff. Uh, in fact, I graduated across the street, and I've only been invited to speak here. Uh, but as one parent to another, I want to say to you, this is a good choice. Uh, these, these students, they are all in. This staff is remarkable, remarkable. I've, I've rarely been in a place where everybody is so much on the same page. So for those of you who are wondering what's going to happen to your precious uh, baby of a 17-year-old or 18-year-old, it's going to be okay. My daughter went to a small private uh, Christian college, and it was the best choice for her. So I commend it to you. So much, especially of the Old Testament, is about rehearsing the story. We rehearse the story of God so we don't forget whose we are. We rehearse our own stories so we don't forget who we are in light of whose we are. So this week we began by rehearsing the gospel on Monday morning. We talked about the sacrificial system and how it caused the people of God to return to the temple over and over and over again so they could never get very far from who their God was. And then on Wednesday, we rehearsed our own stories. And isn't that just a glorious cross right there? You pressed your stories of brokenness and pain and enslavement into the flesh of Jesus who redeems our stories and brings them out of Egypt from death to life. This morning, I want to rehearse the gospel with you again, this time as an Israelite, because we're all Israelites at heart. And remember, when what we said about Israelites, every time you hear the word, you have to add the unspoken Hebrew, which is, bless your heart. That's right. But they are us. Their story is our story. Created, rebellious, exiled, enslaved, rescued, restored, surrendered, promised. If you want the gospel in eight words, there it is, and you should write this down. Created, rebellious, exiled, enslaved, rescued, restored, surrendered, promised. That's the human story. Genesis tells us about a loving God who invested all creatures with a divine design and the power of choice. Before humans ever hit the scene, an angel in pursuit of the power of God rebelled against the holy order of things. It was not enough for him to worship God. He wanted to be like God. So he began to compete for that power and became God's adversary. He's what we know of as the devil. And he became the first exile, ejected from heaven and enslaved by pride. Caught in his sin, humanity was also exiled. Caught 
uh, sent from the Garden of Eden, condemned to a fallen existence. And that's what Paul means when he says our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers, the forces of evil in this dark realm. Created, rebellious, exiled, enslaved. That's the story of every person who lives on this side of Genesis 3. Exile is the human condition. We all keep repeating these same chapters of the human story. We are all built with this longing for a better home. But we live in an exile of our own making. So the problem with the Israelites was that long after their bodies were out of Egypt, their minds were still enslaved. And in that way, they're sort of like a dry drunk. A dry drunk is somebody who's managed to stop drinking, even stay sober over time, but still has the mentality of an addict. They may be sober, but they got the mind of a drunk. All the old emotions, all the old cravings, all the old behavior still there. So their bodies have left Egypt, but their mind is still back there. Think of it like, think of it like a pie. Cut into several pieces. We talked about this the other night. I'm going to rehearse it for those of you who weren't there. Our behavior is one piece of the pie. And for an addict, like chemical addiction or porn addiction or food addiction or anybody who's trying to outrun any kind of brokenness, that, that piece might be a big piece of the pie. For an addict to get sober is a big deal. For somebody to deal with sexual brokenness is a tough thing, but it is not the whole pie. There's a whole lot more to our lives than that one thing. And there's also what happens on the inside, how we process life, how we trust, who we trust, who becomes God for us, the health of our relationships, our outlook on life, all pieces of the pie. So in other words, transformation is not just behavior change, and that's where we miss it. That's where we always miss it. We just want to check the behavior change box or check the am I not good enough box or the I'm a good person box. But we miss the heart level change, the relational change, the spiritual change. And that's the big problem with focusing only on the rules in Leviticus where we've been all week. So out in the desert, between Egypt and the Promised Land, the Israelites mostly functioned like dry drunks. They're always saying, couldn't we just go back to Egypt? At least I knew where my next meal was coming from there. You're always, where's our water? Where's our manna? Where's our meat? I would have, if I was God, I'd have zapped them. <laughs> A lot of patience in the God of your soul. They'd walked out of Egypt, but they didn't yet have the freedom mindset. So God had placed before them this hope, this future. Look, the promised land right up ahead of you. He taught them the behavior of a free person. Look, this is how you're designed. He gave them laws that were in harmony with their created design. Holiness, a good thing. He painted for them this vision of community life built on love and mutual respect. Look, your neighbor loved them. But like any good dry drunk, they responded with resentment and regret. Why don't you just take us back to Egypt? At least there we knew how we were going to eat. 
Making bricks from straw wasn't that bad. They found themselves with the fire of God, I mean the fire of God moving them forward, actually craving the old life, fearful of failure, failure, churning in anxiety, angry, selfish, all the feelings of a slave, spiritually dry drunks. Because as it turns out, to be taken out of slavery doesn't necessarily make you a free person. Created, rebellious, exiled, enslaved, that's half the human story. But the other half, God offers to ride over anyone who is ready to fully come, to gra- come, come by grace through faith into wholeness. Rescue, restoration, surrender, promise. This is the rest of the story, and it writes us into the story of God's people when we accept it. Knowing we could never defeat the forces of evil or or the pull of rebellion on our own, God came to our rescue and restored our power to overcome the enemy. Jesus is our rescue. Come on. Jesus rescues us from the futility of our sin. He restores our relationship with God. This has always been the plan, and you can hear it echo all the way through the Old Testament. No one paints that picture better than David. Psalm 18, he says, He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delights in me. This pattern, creation, or created, rebellious, exiled, enslaved, then rescued, restored, surrendered, promised. That pattern is the story of the Israelite people. And once they lived this story, they were given a charge by God to keep the story alive, to tell it year after year, to remind themselves who they were, where they came from, and where they were headed. So the book of Leviticus begins by teaching us how to beat that path back to the altar of the tabernacle over and over, again and again, as we make those sacrifices, to be reminded day after day of who God is, And by acknowledging who God is, acknowledging everything in my life, in your life, in their lives, that wasn't God. That's how Leviticus begins. And it ends with teaching us how, after we leave the altar and walk back into the world, to take our story with us. And to help them, because who doesn't like connecting a good story with food? That's why we buy popcorn for the movie. It's sort of like what he does. Like, oh, you're about to rehearse the movie. Here's the popcorn. He gives them seven feasts, each feast enacting a piece of their story. The feasts described in Leviticus chapters 23 and 24 are a way for the people of Israel to keep practicing their story so it would continue to be passed along generation to generation. And as the story of the Israelites rehearsed in the context of a feast, Remember, the feast is the center of our gospel. Because the story's been told around that table, passed from generation to generation. It has traveled and expanded as things of the kingdom do, and it has changed the world. Two billion people accept the story 
Two billion more know the story. Two billion more are waiting for you to keep the feast. So this last chapters of Leviticus described these feasts. There were three in the spring. The feast of Passover, the feast of unleavened bread, and the feast of first fruits. And then there were three feasts in the fall. The feast of trumpets, the feast day of atonement, and the feast of tabernacles. The story is told by these six feasts. I am the Lord who brought you out of slavery, who provided for you in the desert, who journeyed with you to the promised land. Remember where you came from, whose you are, and where you're going. That's the story told by those feasts. And then, and then, with, with those feasts and that story on either side, three in the spring, three in the fall, there's one more feast sitting right in the middle, and it's called, wait for it, the Feast of Pentecost. It came 50 days after Passover in the Old Testament. It's the ingathering of the first spring harvest. How cool is that? Finding Pentecost in the Old Testament. This Feast of the Harvest, sitting right in the middle of the story, teaches me it has always been God's intention to harvest souls. This isn't an Acts story. This is the Leviticus story or a, or a Genesis story. This Feast of the Harvest sits right in the middle of our story and it teaches me it's always been God's intention to have His people participate in the harvest by telling the story at the table. So Acts chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 tell us the story that was anticipated for us in Leviticus. When the Feast of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And without warning, there was a sound like a strong wind, gale force. No one could tell where it came from. It filled the whole building. And then, like a wildfire, the Holy Spirit spread through their ranks. And they started speaking in all these different languages as the Spirit prompted them. This was the moment God ushered in the age of the Holy Spirit. And that day, the Christian church went from about 100 people to more than 3,000 in one day. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He does things we cannot explain any other way. Isaiah 43, God says, I'm about to do something new. See, I've already started. Do you not see it? I'm going to make a path through the wilderness. I'm going to create rivers in dry wastelands. That's what the Holy Spirit does. When you give Him room in your life, He cuts a path through the desert, through what looks for all the world like impossible. He can make a river run through the wasteland of your life. And people who get honest and get healed and get sober and who begin to take the glory of holiness seriously, their wastelands get soaked and they can't help but talk about it. That's how the Holy Spirit works. I heard it when I prayed for people, you, this week, to be healed of your porn addiction and your food addiction and your deep sense of self-loathing. I saw it last night when somebody overwhelmed by that power of the Holy Spirit fell out. And then this wave of release just kind of came up from her body like a holy 
fog. It was glorious. She was overflowing. I see it in your willingness to press your pain into the flesh of Jesus. But listen, what you pressed into his flesh, friends, that is not the whole story. Now it's time to claim your healing and to walk out of your exile, your slavery. You were created, rebellious, exiled, enslaved, but now you are rescued, restored, surrendered, and promised. You've got to make some noise. Because the gospel deserves that. This is your story. You are rescued, restored, surrendered, and promised. Doesn't it sound a little like Waffle House? I always have this fantasy of being a Waffle House waitress. I want to be the third shift. As soon as they fire me from my day job, that's, that's, I'm heading straight to Waffle House. What can I get you good people? And then by the end of the night, I'm going to say, you are scattered, smothered, and covered in your old life. But in your new life, you are rescued and redeemed, my friend. <laughs> you know, it's not on the page. In recovery stories, this is step 12. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to others and to practice these principles in all our affairs. This is the mark of the Holy Spirit, that our hearts get so full as our stories are transformed from exile to feasting that we can't help but share the story. The Holy Spirit bursts a kind of love in us for the world, breaks our hearts for the ones who are in exile. That we get what my mother used to call a bad case of the can't help it. We can't help but share the story. Stay here. Jesus would tell his friends at the end of Luke, or as your banner out front says, start here, start here. Until you receive the Holy Spirit, when you, until you get your own personal Pentecost, until you are feasting on God, overflowing in the Spirit, unable to contain the story. So start here, but then impact the world. So this call and the invitation this morning is this. Jesus, fill me with your Holy Spirit. You or your parents or somebody paid way too much money for you to come to this institution, for you to leave without the Holy Spirit. So friends, do not leave without it. God is after so much more for your life than a set of facts. He wants to take you on a journey. He wants to build a pathway through your wilderness. He wants to pour a river into your dry spirit. He wants to fill you so full of the Holy Spirit. Love for the ones around you who are thirsting to death and trying to quench that thirst with everything but Jesus. It's this funny little thing Paul tells the Ephesians. I don't know what they were doing. The Ephesians must have loved to party. Because Paul says, don't get drunk on wine. 
It's the same guy who told Timothy, you need a little wine. So it's not like Paul thinks it's all terrible. He just says, don't get drunk on wine. That will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs among yourselves, making music to the Lord in your hearts. I think Paul is, Paul is calling them to be deep people. He's trying to help them see the difference between the real thing and the cheap invitations. In so many ways, it is an echo and a summary, a spark note of Leviticus. So friends, if you're trying to fill that emptiness in you or that longing or that stress or that anxiety or that fear or anything other than the feast of the Holy Spirit, it won't work. It will give the illusion of relief, but it will not get you through the desert. I'm going to tell you, it is a fact that the enemy of your soul would, would, would like nothing better than for you to go looking for joy in all the wrong places. He'd love for you to fill your agenda, even with good things, with all the shoulds and oughts. And he would really love to kill your sense of humor, your patience with people, your attitude of gratitude. The enemy of God would love to drain your river and leave you with a wasteland, but I can tell you that is not the created design given you. And you know, that's for me, that's how I know it's time to step back and give the Holy Spirit room to fill me again. I don't know what the, I don't know theologically how to explain this. What I know is sometimes the world pokes holes in my soul and the Spirit leaks out. I have no idea how that works but I just know that's the way it feels. When I'm losing my sense of humor, when things get too serious, when everything becomes rocket science, when actually only rocket science is rocket science, then I know it's time to step back and be filled again. And I know you can relate. Some of you have the weight of the world on your shoulders right now. You've got relationship issues and school-related issues and money-related issues, and none of that is going away just because Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. But then, then Jesus says, take heart, I have overcome the world. And the other side of the exile is a feast, and the sacrifice is a release. And that's what I want for you this morning. I want for you to have the abundant, spirit-filled life. Will you stand? What I want for this room, for this campus, is for people who are filled, so full, that you become more loving, more joyful, more peaceful, more patient, more kind, more gentle, more good, more faithful, more disciplined. I want you to live a life so transformed by the power of God that everyone around you senses the life that's in you. And so this morning, I want to invite you to feast on the Holy Spirit. And I want to invite you, if you feel the holes have been poked into your soul, to be filled again. And so here's how we're going to do this. There are some people who just need to come to the altar. And if that's you, feel free to come. But for you guys up here, it's just hard to get there. So I'm asking you to turn to one other person or two other people. Make a, like a prayer triangle with two other people. And I want you to just turn to them and say, all right, I want to pray for you and I want you to pray for me. 
I'm going to ask you uh, to pray for me about this issue, and you're going to say, and I want you to pray for me about this issue. And we're going to pray for each other, and it's going to do it in a minute. You've got about two minutes for this. You don't have time to time, so don't turn to each other and say, man, i got a lot going on. Hey, what's for lunch? All that stuff. Don't do that now. This is prayer time, people. Stay with me. And um, so you're going to pray for each other. Now, I know there is an introvert in this room who is horrified in this moment because you cannot do this. Here's what you're going to do. When I say, okay, go, you're just going to sit down right where you are, and you're going to put your hands in your head, and you're going to look really spiritual. (laughs) And nobody's going to bother you. We're going to say, okay, buddy, we get it. We get it. There are already people coming to the altar now. And the rest of you, you're going to turn to one another, and you're going to be the altar for each other. You ready? Go.
Tom Atkins, an old uh, Asbury guy, told me one time, when you get prayed over to be filled with the Holy Spirit, you've got to walk in obedience, not feeling. So Lord, I'm praying that you pour out your spirit over this room. I trust and believe that you have answered prayers even as we've prayed them. And now, will you descend? Do Pentecost on us. Let us feast on your Holy Spirit this morning. Let's walk away from this place, God. May we be filled and walk in that filling, knowing whose we are and who we are. 